many times. Um, and I guess I never really thought about it the way I thought about it this morning as we were singing it. I've always loved the song. I just never really thought about it this way. <coughs> the chorus says, every, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be your name. Or blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name, your glorious name. The next verse after the, after the chorus is, Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. And then next, blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. And then the bridge. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Now, we've sung that song, as I said, many, many times. But when I came to church this morning, um, on the way here, I've been doing a lot of thinking. You may do the same when you come to church. Um, but I was just thinking about life and thinking about uh, what's been going on in my life recently and uh, thinking about mom and thinking about the struggles with mom and the struggles are increasing, and as you can expect, and um, getting more challenging and at times very difficult, even emotionally difficult and all the rest. As you, you, again, you can understand. Um, and I got to church and I talked to various people and um, I heard numerous stories of difficulties going on in people's lives, whether it's stress-related or <laughs> septic-related or any number of other things, um, child-rearing-related, um, in this case, infant-rearing-related, and any number of other things, difficulties. Life is full of them, isn't it? And as we're singing the song, after my own driving here and thinking about it, and then hearing different stories while we were here before the service, we came to the first song, and my first initial reaction to the song was the same as it's always been. You know, ultimately, and not ultimately, but I know, like, for example, with my mom, this is sin in a, in, at work in her. Right? Sin in the world. Because sin brought death. Correct? Um, Charlie mentioned about stress and health that he's been going through lately. Sin in the world, isn't it? Septic problems. Sin in the world. Infant rearing. All we have to say is total depravity. Right? Sin in the world. And there are many other stories. All of us have our stories, don't we? Because we're humans, fallen humans, sinful humans, in a sinful, fallen world. But the thing that I oftentimes missed, and this morning just really struck me, is not just, the song is not really primarily focusing in on the sovereignty of God. It talks about it, right? You give and take away the, the bridge. Uh, the chorus, every blessing you pour out. And even when the darkness comes. Correct? It's talking about God's sovereignty, isn't it? But the theme of the song, and I know the song's not inspired, but certainly we've got to recognize it pours out of the scriptures, doesn't it? I mean, this is like Habakkuk 3. And Job. Yeah. 
But I'm, I'm just saying, for me, it was Habakkuk 3, the end of, end of 3, as he interacts with what God's doing. But you're right, Job, no question. Your give and take away is clearly from Job. But the theme of the song is, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's really easy for me. Well, first of all, let me say, blessed be the name of the Lord means something different than we typically think it means. Blessed be the name of the Lord means, may I bless your name. And what that means is something we typically don't understand either. What that means is, may I exalt your name. Because you deserve that. Blessing the name of the Lord is exalting the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord represents the person himself, God. So may I exalt you is the picture. May I lift you up because of this. Because of this event or that event or another event, may I in the middle of this do what? Bless the name of the Lord. That's the point of the song and that's very clearly biblical. And as, as we were singing the song this morning, it just struck me too often, I take a half step instead of a full step. I take the half step to say, God is sovereign. And I'll even say to myself, and he loves me. And he's merciful. And he's gracious. But this, the second half of the step is actually blessing his name, exalting him, praising him, magnifying him, spreading his fame. That's a whole different animal, isn't it? Unless I'm thinking wrongly, it seems to me like that's a whole different animal. And it just struck me this morning. That's what he says in the, in the bridge. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And if my heart is saying, blessed be my name, or your name, what's going to proceed from there? Yes. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's not merely a, a theological treatise or a theological understanding that somehow is some sort of salve that doesn't affect my life. The argument of Job and Habakkuk and the author of this song, of course, Matt Beth and Matt Redmond are not inspired, they're not writing inspired text, but it is reflecting accurately the inspired text, is that the truth is not merely something acknowledged. The truth is something that radically changes us. And that's different, isn't it? And I've I, I got to be honest, I felt kind of guilty this morning. I needed the confession this morning. I was feeling pretty guilty as we sang that first song. Because I wasn't finding myself on the way here this morning, in the l this last week, as I look back on my week. I found myself acknowledging God. I found myself acknowledging His graciousness, his mercy, his love, his compassion, his sovereignty. I did not find myself directly interacting with the events of my life by blessing his name. That was kind of absent. And as I look back at my life, and I suspect it's probably no different from most of us, that's probably pretty common, isn't it? Is it any wonder we end up with a dead theology? Um, so, just wanted to share that with you because that song I thought was really uh, 
challenging to me this morning, and I really appreciate it. It tied up dramatically to the to the your confession because I find myself too often saying I'm okay. And as you and I talked about before the mess before your before service this morning before your confession, no, I'm not okay. I'm not okay at all, and uh, it's easy to put on a theological robe and think we're okay. But it doesn't affect the way we live, the way we speak, the way we praise at all. That's interesting. Thank you. just want to share that with you because it really struck me this morning. Well, we are in Amos chapter 1 this morning. <clears throat> and as I said last week, we are not going to nickel and dime our way through this book because we need to see the big sweep and, and the storyline typically in the Old Testament is more of a big sweep than the New Testament because you tend to have more of a narrative thing going on, although it's not clearly not narrative in this text. This is poetry. But in poetry, it's the same way. You kind of got to get the sweep, don't you, in order to understand it? Um, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, just to give you a little heads up, we're going to make it all the way through chapter 1 and through the first section of chapter 2 this morning. In other words, what we're going to do is we're going to look at all the foreign nations that Amos references. We are not going to look at Judah. We're going to slice Judah out for next week. Okay? So we're going to look at all the nations that he mentions except for Judah this morning. Before we read the text, uh, let's start out with a word of prayer and then we're going to talk about it. Lord, help us this morning as we consider your word. (coughs) Help us as we consider these nations and your interaction, your your judgments upon these nations, that we will not merely look at this as a piece of data of history. I pray that you'll help us to see you in this text. At the same time, I pray you'll help us to see ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you will use this in our lives to draw us closer, to draw us to repentance, to draw us to worship, to draw us to holiness to draw us to an understanding of how desperate we are in need of you. So work in us this morning. Help us to understand. In your name I pray. Amen. It is important as we get into uh, this first chapter of Amos, as we work our way through the entire chapter, that we understand one thing. Um, It's really easy to miss the point, especially because Amos does not mention it. And, And the reason why Amos doesn't mention this point is because... It's presumed because the receiver of this text, it would make sense to. But to us today, it may not make sense. Let me put it this way. Have you ever interacted with people with regard to current events or news or recent history or maybe even older history and the people you interact with and they're pretty well clueless and are ignorant of those things? You ever meet people like that? It's all the time, isn't it? There's a lot of people who don't follow news and even more people who don't know history. Correct? It's everywhere. In Amos' day, that was not the case. At all. I would submit to you that people in Amos' day, in fact, throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament era, uh, they did not have the ease and access to the news media we have at all. They didn't have internet, they didn't have TV, they didn't have cell phones, uh, they didn't have radio, they they had nothing. They only had one thing. And the one thing they had was, what do you think? 
They had messengers, but primarily word of mouth messengers. Word of mouth. And it was the, uh, the, the current events were always the talk of, of the town. They were always the talk of the family. Now you got to understand, current events are not like current events today. Like we get inundated with current events today, don't we? When you hear current events today, oftentimes what you're hearing is about the latest TV shows, the latest movies, the latest activities, the movie stars, um, and those type of things, don't you? I mean, that's a large chunk. And it's overwhelming, isn't it? If you start adding local news, national news, um, monetary news, um, political news, sports, you add in uh, the entertainment news, which is really huge, it's overwhelming. Well, that's not the way it was back then. Life, life was, at the same time back then, more complicated. It was more simple. It was both. It was more complicated because nothing was easy. There was nothing easy back then. You didn't flip a light switch on and have light, for example. Everything was hard. You didn't, you, if, you were, if you were a farmer, you didn't climb into your tractor and just start the tractor up and, and nowadays even a tra farmers don't even have to, if they're, if, they're, if they're bigger farmers, they don't even have to handle the steering wheel when they're, when they're, when they're plowing because it's all done by GPS and it just does it. And the farmer sits in his big old million plus dollar tractor just monitoring it. It's a whole different world. Back then you had ordinary oxes you were using or cattle that had a mind of their own. And you may, if you were good, you had a single bottom plow that you, that you were dragging behind it. And it wasn't like any single bottom plow that we know if you know anything about single bottom plows. Um, but you get the point. Life was, at one level, it was very hard. It was very complicated. Nothing was easy. On the other side of the coin, life was easy. From the, from the perspective that there was not a whole lot going on. I mean, what did you have? You occasionally had a king that made edicts. You had taxes. That never changes, right? You had your job, which for most people was agrarian. You were a farmer. And for some people, you worked the market. And then you got up, you, went to, you ate breakfast, you went to work, you had lunch, you continued to work, you went home, you had dinner, and you went to bed. And that was life. And by the time it was, dinner was over, you were tired. You were ready for bed. Because everything was hard. But in the midst of all that, people actually, because there wasn't the relationship isolating stuff like TV, radio, internet, people, now this is really going to be radical, but people actually talked to one another. <laughs> they actually talked to one another. And as they talked to one another, they passed on information that they had gathered elsewhere. And unlike today's whisper down the lane, they were really good at keeping the story right. <laughs> Today, we, we don't have that skill anymore, do we? Well, some do, but most don't. And so the word would be passed from person to person to person about current 
events. But those current events were really important things, like, again, king's edicts. Like, what country's going to war with another country? Like, who do you worship? Who do other people worship? What's up with that country or that other country on our border or that other country? Or that? And everyone knew these things. That's really important as we go into Amos. Very important. Because we're going to be hearing about a few countries that are bordering countries. Does that make sense? And there'll be a reference of countries even further away. But, but generally speaking, we're going to be hearing about countries that are bordering Israel. And it's important that we understand, like for example, unlike today where most of you here probably know very little, if anything, about Canada. If this was Israel, you'd know everything about Canada. You'd know all sorts of things about the government, about what they're doing, about what's important to Canadians. Well, we all know hockey's important to Canada. We'll throw that one out there. But what's that? And maple syrup. There you go. Um, but generally speaking, we know very little. They would know all sorts of stuff. And Mexico, same thing. The only reason why we know anything about Mexico right now is because of the crisis that has been talked about in the media. Other than that, most of us would probably know very little, if anything, about Mexico. In that day, they would know all sorts of things. And not just current events, they'd also know history. History is important to the people. History is absolutely important. And so they'd know, they'd know the history about what's going on in the area, neighboring countries, um, and, and as well as themselves. They, they'd know which, which foreign entity around them is growing in strength, which one is shrinking in strength. If it's shrinking in strength, they'd know why. If it's growing in strength, they'd know why. Those type of things. They'd know those things. And that's, Amos presumes that. But today, if we read it, we may not pick up on that. So I'm basing a lot of what I'm going to say today on that reality. Because I think it's important that we get that. Otherwise, this storyline kind of goes completely flat. So, with that in mind, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 1 and we'll read to the end of the section that we're going to be looking at this morning. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the, tops of Carmel wither, the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with, a thresh, with threshing sledges of iron. So, I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel and it shall devour the thresholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Thus, says the Lord. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they've carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So, I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod. 
And him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind and their king shall go into exile. He and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus, says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned, in, he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So, I shall send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the, str the strongholds of Kerioth and Moab shall die amid uproar. Amid shouting, and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Interesting, scary section of verses, isn't it? Can I just point out a couple things real quick? You'll notice there's no grace here. Did you hear that? We're actually going to discover there was, but isn't. There is no grace, there is no mercy. In, these section, in this section. There will be a few sections later on that will have some, but in this section, there is none. Judgment is declared. Condemnation declared. And the, and the condemnation will be completed. The text breaks down, if we added the, Jude, uh, the Judah section that came after, which we're not adding, the text would break down into three different categories. Although it does break down into each individual nation. But it, it breaks down into, in our section today, it breaks down into two broad categories and then Judah being a third category, which we'll look at next week. <clears throat> You'll see that as we work our way through. What we're going to do is we're going to wander through each one of the sections and we're going to show how there's two major sections within these, or that encompass these smaller sections. So we're going to wander through the statements on each, um, each nation that the Lord gives. So verse 3 starts out talking about Damascus. Thus says the Lord. A declaration from God. Important you hear this. Amos is saying this is what the Lord is saying. This is a, a statement of condemnation, a statement of judgment, and it's to Damascus. And I pointed out last or two weeks ago, the statement 3 and 4 comes up repeatedly in the book. And you'll see that elsewhere in other books. Sometimes it's different numbers, 2 and 3, 6 and 7. Some people have said that there, uh, that there may be some sort of significance between 3 and 4. 
equals 7, the perfect number. I don't know if that's the case or not. I'm not going to go there. Um, so you can do with it you, what you will on that. I think it, it's more accurate to say when he says for 3 and for 4, he's talking about completeness. It's a complete condemnation. But there's another implication I didn't mention because I wanted to save it for today in, this, in these statements at the beginning of each section. When he says, for example, for three uh, transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke punishment. It's really important that we, we get another aspect of these driving home. And it says, for three transgressions and for four. Again, picture of completeness. But the other implication of it is that the idea is they've been, what do you think? They've been warned. This has happened repeatedly. Implication, they've been warned repeatedly. Now, where, where'd the warning come from? We don't really have any real evidence that Damascus in the Scriptures had specifically had a prophet go to them and say, excuse me, Damascus, if you keep doing these things, this is going to happen. So what, what, what's going on here? This is what I was talking about in the very beginning. What's going on is this. And it's, it, I'm going to say it just once with Damascus, but it applies to every one of these. When he says for three transgressions and four, what he's saying is this. It's complete transgression. I mean, you have just been characterized by transgressions this, in the way I'm going to describe. But you've also been warned. How have they been warned? What did we say? Word got out. And it's important we understand what we're talking about here. What would... Damascus, Syria, in that day, what would they have known? Well, they'd, they'd have known all sorts of things. They would know, obviously, who Israel is. They'd also know, obviously, who Judah is. They would also know who Israel and Judah's God is, Yahweh. They would also know things like now, this may, may surprise you, but because they were such religious people, they would know even more things than that. They would know about the promises of God, of Yahweh, Israel. They would know, now this may come as a real shock to you, but they would know of the covenant. They would not just know of a covenant, they would know specifics about the covenant. They would absolutely know. And one of the big reasons why they would know is because in the ancient Near East, which is what that area was called, in the ancient Near East, the people were not like they are today. You, we could say that today the vast majority of, for example, Americans, you could throw in Canadians as well if you want to, uh, first world countries, you could say that even more obviously, the vast majority are not what we would call religious people, wouldn't we? In fact, you talk to the average American and you're going to find oftentimes they're not even interested in, in any discussion about religion. It's not interested. It's like not even on the radar screen. If you ask the average American today to tell me what you know about Catholicism, if they claim to be Catholic, they don't have a lot, do they? I'm not picking on Catholicism. You ask the average person who claims to be a, a Protestant Christian, and they can't give you a whole lot of data on what they say they are. Right? That's pretty typical. And then the people who don't claim to be religious, they don't know anything, and they don't 
care. That's not the way it was then. The people were incredibly religious. Part of it was driven by fear. Part of it was driven by tradition and other things. But they had all sorts of gods, typically. Israel is the only monotheistic god or, or monotheistic uh, country. The rest of them were all polytheistic. They had all sorts of gods. And they worshiped gods for everything. They had fertility gods. They had rain gods. They had sun gods. They had moon gods. They had star gods. They had rock gods. They had river gods. They had, you name it, they had it. And as was the tradition in the ancient Near East, if some other country had different gods, you know what they would do? They would either adopt them or at minimum they would study them incredibly intensively. And any country that was rising in power, they really wanted to know their gods because they connected the rise of the country to the power of their gods. So that being, and everybody was that way. The idea of agnosticism or atheism was like not in existence. Everyone was that way. So they, were they, they loved their gods. They worshiped ferociously their gods. And they carefully examined other gods and the claims of other gods. And the history of those nations to see if the claims of those gods were accurate or not true. Now if they looked at the history of Israel, what would they see about Israel's God? It's true. All they had to do is check out the Red Sea, Jericho, the conquering of the land, the Jordan River, the wanderings in the wilderness, the escape from Egypt, the plagues. And if you don't think I'm really telling the truth, all you got to do is read Joshua. <laughs> right in the very beginning in Joshua, what do you find? You're introduced real early on to a person. Anybody know who that person is? Rahab. And what did she know? She's just a prostitute. And she knew about the Red Sea. I mean, that's pretty stunning. And what did she say? Not only did she know, but what else did she say? Everyone in Jericho is terrified of them because of the Red Sea implication being their God. That was the way of things in that day. So why do I share that with you? Because this statement for three transgressions of in Damascus and, and uh, uh, three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke punishment. The, the the backstory of that is they knew who Israel's God is. They knew of his claims. They knew of his power. And so the transgressions went from something really insignificant to something really significant because ultimately what they're doing is they're not opposing Israel. They're what? They're opposing Israel's God. They're actively opposing, rejecting, and attacking Israel's God. That's very important. So God says through Amos, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, 
I will not revoke punishment. The idea of not revoke punishment means it's coming and you can do nothing to stop it. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is listed right afterwards in verse 3 because they have thrashed Gilead with, a, with threshing sledges of iron. Now, there's two possible meanings and probably both are true of this. They've thrashed Gilead with thrashing sledges of iron. Both are probably true. In fact, I would say both are absolutely true. When, when they, before Amos had, had attacked, because Syria was, as I said two weeks ago, Syria kept on attacking Israel on the northern side. Um, when they attacked, they would come in and they would literally, I mean, not literally, but they would absolutely rape the land. They would come in and decimate the land. So that's the picture, the first picture of, of threshing, uh, as it says in verse 3, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. The picture is one they pummeled the earth, the land, to unusableness. It's unusable in every way. But it's also much bigger than that. When Syria came in and attacked, Damascus being the capital, uh, when they attacked Gilead, they didn't just thrash the land. But what they did is they took the inhabitants of Gilead and they threw them under the sledging irons. And so they, they and these sledging irons were, were horrific because what they would do is they would literally tear you piece from piece while you're still alive. If you could picture that. Um, probably one of the best ways to picture it, although it would be much more gruesome than this, is if someone was thrown into one of those machines that grind up large chunks of metal. Have you ever seen videos of that type of thing? Like they put cars in and they suck the car in, chew it up in little pieces. It would have been much more, much more slow, much more gruesome, and much more blunt. It was a very painful, grotesque process. The Syrians were evil people. And they would typically do this feet first. And it was very slow. Very painful. So for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke punishment. The people of Gilead were God's people. So the result is, verse 4, I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the bar gate of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven and him who holds the, sept holds, uh, uh, the scepter from uh, Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile in, uh, to Kerr, which is an interesting statement. As he speaks to the people of Damascus, as Amos He's actually speaking in Israel, but about the people of Damascus and Syria in large. He says this, because they did not listen, this is important, because they did not listen, listen to what? Listen to the story. Listen to the history of Israel's God. Listen to the love of Israel's God for his people. Listen to the truthfulness of God's faithfulness to his promises, to his covenant. Because this group of people outside of the covenant, because they are clearly outside of the covenant. They are, they are, they are uncovenanted people. Non-covenanted people. Probably a better way to put it. 
They've not been removed from the covenant. They never had a covenant. Because they did not listen to what we could call the general revelation of God, although it's more about a communication of special revelation of God, but you get the point. Because they did not listen, after repeatedly ad nauseum hearing the truth of Israel's God, and instead of not listening, they attacked God's people in vicious, horrific, brutal, inhumane ways. This is what I'm going to do. And it's interesting. He uses this term repeatedly throughout the text. He talks about devouring them. It's an interesting term, isn't it? Obviously, in this one, you can picture devouring in light of the threshing sledges, can't you? You want to devour these people in the land? I'm going to send judgment on you and you will be devoured like you can't imagine. And what he says at the very end in this condemnation, in this condemning prophecy about Damascus is most important. He says to Damascus, to Syria, at the very end, of course the king is going to be taken off with him as well. Uh, The inhabitants are going to be cut off. They're not going to be able to stay there. And at the very end of verse 5, and the people of Syria will go into exile into where? Kerr. Kerr means nothing to you, right? Kerr meant nothing to me until I started studying it. Kerr is a major area of Assyria. North and east of Syria. Which is very interesting because Syria was stronger in general, although getting stronger, getting weaker, it was stronger in general than, than Israel was, but it was grotesquely weaker than Assyria. But that's not the main point. The main point is, as evil as Syria was to actually take the people of Gilead and run them through the, the threshing sledges of iron, there's nothing compared to Assyria. In the history of our world, probably Assyria was the most violent, inhumane group of people, country of people, our world has never, ever known. It was horrific what they would do. And the prophecy from the God of Israel to Syria is, you like that so much? I'm giving you over to it. That's the point. You like it so much? I'm giving you over to it. And I'm going to send you to Assyria. Oh, they'll use their thrashing sledges as well on you, but that's, that's nothing to them. They will skin you alive. They will put you in, on poles, impale you on poles and light you on fire while still alive so they, while they're having their garden parties that you will be their light for their garden parties. And that's not even the worst of it. The horrors of what they did. So that's the condemnation on Damascus. These are really important things. And by the way, the reason why these are so important, again, background to two weeks ago, is a setup to when he speaks to Israel. I've told you that already. The setup to, what, to his speaking to Israel. and what this, So you could really think about it this way. This is the putting the noose on Israel's neck. Because as Israel would read this, they would say what? Yes and amen, right? Because if you were an Israelite in that day, would you not be horrified at what happened in Gilead? 
You may even be related to some people in, in, the, in Gilead. They have now been thrashed. If you weren't related, you probably knew somebody. And you certainly heard the stories, the horrors. And so you hear the story, you're like, yes, those people are evil. And they, you would know what Kerr is or where Kerr is, and you know that's Assyria, and you know how evil Assyria is. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And Syria is my enemy, and even though ultimately us Syria is going to be my enemy, they don't know this at this point, they're going to get Syria. A yes and amen. Why? Well, because of what they did in Gilead. But not really. Correct? That's, that, that's just the specifics of the story. It's not really what they did in, 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 in Gilead that, that, that's the reason why this is happening. Why is it? Because they didn't what? Listen to the word of the Lord. That's the point. See, for Israel, they would hear it and say, yeah, because of what they did in Gilead, get them, God! And they're missing the whole point. It's because they didn't listen to what God had to say. Moves on to the next group. Thus says the Lord, verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza, he moves from the north to the south, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod. And... Uh, him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, I will turn my hand against Ekron and uh, the, the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. So we have three transgressions and four against Gaza. Same thing we saw before. A lot of these things are going to be repetitive. I will not revoke the punishment. Same thing we already said before. What they do though? That's different. What they do? These, by the way, Gaza is referencing the Philistines. There was five major cities of Gaza, uh, of, of, of the Philistines, Gaza being probably the most major of all of them. Four or five at this point in time are still in existence. Goth has fallen, but the other four are still the, the strongholds of the Philistines, and Gaza being the greatest at that point in time. What did they do? Well, it's interesting what they did. Verse 4 says, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. It's an interesting statement. They carried into exile a whole people to deliver them to Edom. What's that all about? Here's what it's about. <clears throat> Those times when a country would be invaded, like Syria was in, in, at times invading Israel. Whenever an invasion takes place, you always have certain things happening. Obviously, you have a war going, right? But then what else happens? People scatter, right? They're called, no, not, 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 the, not the army people, but they're called refugees. Absolutely, they're called refugees. Well, what they would oftentimes do out of fear, what they would do as they see the army advancing, the refugees would flee not just the front because they evaluate the strength of the enemy and they say, man, the enemy is more much more powerful than we are. They're going to wipe out our whole country. So what a refugee would oftentimes do, and we see it even today, don't we? They would flee to a weaker country or a stronger country. They would flee to where they think a, a, a safety would be, right? A stronger country. 
what happened historically is some people in Israel, when Syria was invading Israel at times, they would flee and they would flee to stronger countries and it would, they wouldn't stay in Israel. They wouldn't stay in, in uh, they wouldn't even flee down to Judah. They would go beyond that and they'd go to Gaza. Philistines are there. What do we know about the Philistines? They're giants, right? Goliath, they're strong. And they would flee down there thinking that surely they would find safety, protection. And oftentimes the refugees would flee to these countries and they'd say something to the countries they were fleeing to, the stronger ones. If you let us in, we will we'll serve you. We will fight alongside you if that country comes down here. And they establish agreements to do so. And the Philistines, what they do, they say, absolutely, come on in. You can join us, absolutely, and you can, you, we'll use you and, and, and you can fight alongside us if, if the Syrians come down here. And instead, after the people got there, they imprisoned them. They turned them over to an enemy, one of their arch enemies, and were absolutely decimated. Horrific situation. And again, what do we have? We have the Philistines. It's, it's interesting, the Philistines. The Philistines know some things, don't they, about Israel's God? You think they've got a clue? You know they do. I mean, there's several, by the way. There's several dramatic clues. Before David, there's a hugely dramatic clue. It's in, it's in Joshua. You know what the story is? It's at the end of Joshua. Anybody know? It's about an old man. A really old man who felt like he was just as strong as when he was 40 years earlier. Caleb. After they took possession of the land, Caleb went to Joshua and said, now can I go take possession of the land that was promised to me? You know what the land was that was promised to him? It was some of the lands of the Philistines. And God sa or Joshua said, go. And so the scriptures record that Caleb, 84-year-old man, I think he was 84, and his servants did what? You know what? It's interesting how it's, how it's written in Joshua. It just says Joshua told him to go, and the very next sentence is what? And then there was peace in the land for more. You know what that means? An 84-year-old man and his servants went and kicked their butts. Now, he didn't wipe out all of them. How is that possible he could do that? These guys are Philistines. How could he take possession of the land God promised him? Because God was with him. This is a God thing. The Philistines knew about Jericho, the sun standing still, and all the rest. They would know all about that stuff. And yet, for three transgressions and four, what was that all about? They rejected the truth about who Israel's God is. They did not embrace the truth of who God is. And because of that, God's judgment is upon them. <clears throat> so he says, verse 7, I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and shall devour her strongholds. You think you're strong? You think you can, you think you can act the way you act? and be impervious to what I am going to do to you, you can't, I will send a fire and it will consume, it will devour like a ravenous 
Thanksgiving meal. Like a ravenous people consume a turkey. The walls and the strongholds will be consumed. And the inhabitants will be cut off from Ashdod. And the implication, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, these people are going to be killed. I will turn my hand against Ekron. What does he say? The remnant of the Philistines will what? Perish. So how many Philistines do you guys know today? <clears throat> Anybody know any Philistines today? <laughs> they played the NBA. <laughs> what happened? Well, historically, they were, they were wiped out. Why? Because they didn't listen to the word of the Lord. That's the reason why. Which is in interesting why he starts out by saying, thus what? Says the Lord, and it concludes by saying what? End of verse 8. Says the Lord God, right? Says the Lord God. They don't listen to the word of the Lord. But the Lord speaks, Lord speaks. And what the Lord says, always what? Comes to fruition. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of the brotherhood. So I will set a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. The basic story of Tyre is this, another foreign country. The basic story of Tyre is uh, that they, um, they also were wiped out because they didn't listen to the Lord, three and four. Uh, what did they do? They did the same thing the Philistines did. They delivered up a whole people to Edom. Same thing. Do you hear that? They acted just like the, the, the Philistines. The difference is that they had a relationship with Israel. That's the difference. They had a relationship. And they did it anyway. So the result is the same. Grand summation. And then after Tyre, everything changes. I remember I said in the very beginning that the storyline is one of a noose tightening on Israel. From after verse 10, everything changes because what God does through Amos, he shifts the focus. Before now, it was all these foreign nations, three different foreign nations. From verse 11 and following, it's no longer about foreign nations. Oh, they're still foreign nations, but they're different. Because from 11 and following, they're what? They're related. The next three nations are related to Israel. Yes, they are related because they have the same parents, Isaac and Rebecca. Exact same parents. No, am I wrong on that? Oh, that's right. That's right. Sorry. I stand corrected. But they have the same, they're relatives. They're relatives. So, verse 11. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity and, tore, and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will set a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. What's he saying? Something different is here. We have relatives now. Now, certainly in the relatives, we don't have the same covenant. They're not under the covenant. 
Israel has their covenant. The relatives have, a, have, have different covenants. But they're not, they're not a covenant of life and peace like Israel and Judah have. And because they didn't get the same covenant, what has happened? Because they don't have the covenant, they are... They're, they're what? They're foreigners of the race, but they're bitter. They're bitter. In fact, the scriptures tell us they continue to be bitter. Don't they? So what do we find here? For, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because he what? He pursued his brother with a sword and what? Cast off all pity or all compassion, all care, and he did it how long? All the time. He did it perpetually. It was a characteristic of him. Now again, we need to remember that this is said in the midst of the clear communication of God. They're not clueless on who Israel's God is. They're even closer in understanding of who God's I- God is. But he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity, all uh, compassion, all anything, and kept after it and after and after it forever. As it says, he kept his wrath forever. And so the implication in the text here is verse 12. This is a really strong implication. So I will pursue them forever. I will destroy them. Why? Again, same thing. It's not so much that they didn't that they that they did the specific things with their sword. It's they rejected God. It's re, it's that they rejected what God had revealed. Which brings us down to verse thirteen. For three transgressions, well, first of all, thus says the Lord: For three transgressions, the Ammonites are before I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with, with shouting on the day of battle with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind and their kings will go in exile and he and his princes together says the Lord. So the Ammonites, again, got relatives. Okay, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Thank you though. So he says, in the same way, you have not listened, you have not cl- uh, uh, considered what is true, what has been revealed. Quite to the contrary, their jealousy, this is the idea, their jealousy is so steep in them, so strong in them, that what they did when they invaded and went to Gilead, they did what with the women of Gilead? What? They didn't just kill their babies, what did they do? They ripped open the, the women of Gilead in order to what? Kill the babies. Now, some people looked at this passage as this is, this is why abortion is really bad. This is not a passage about abortion. Okay, although it's certainly I guess you can make some sort of weird application to it. The point of this story about them ripping into pregnant women and killing their babies, ripping their babies out and killing their babies is this. Because it says right after that, and did what? What are they doing? Well, the next line, to enlarge their borders. What, what are they doing? Here's what these people are doing. 
This country, the Ammonites, are going into Gilead with the sole purpose of wiping out not just the people, wiping out the descendants for the purpose of destroying the inheritance that has been promised. Okay? It's to wipe out the inheritance. God's promised inheritance. What's the inheritance? The land, land, seed, and blessing. They're going in to wipe out, the, the, the idea is if we can wipe out the descendants, we're wiping out the inheritance, at which point in time then the land becomes ours for the taking. So this is a deception. This is really evil. They actually are acknowledging God's promise. They're actually acknowledging that God is God. They're actually acknowledging that God's real and that God has spoken, that Israel's God has spoken. And what they're doing is they're saying, let's work the, let's work the system. His inheritance cannot continue to pass if there's nobody to pass it to. They're not even denying that Israel's God is real and powerful. They're not even denying that the inheritance is true. They're, they're, they're receiving the idea of, of God, Yahweh, being true and powerful and that he is a giver of things. And he's a good God. They're saying, you know, we can have this land if we can only stop it from having an inheritor. Interesting, isn't it? Only we can stop the process that's free for the taking. And it's, it's in effect like God is saying to him, in hearing the word of the Lord, you didn't hear. In hearing about who God is, you did not hear. In understanding the truth about God, you still chose to not acknowledge the reality. In effect, God's saying, you can't game me. You can't. You can't game me. You can't manipulate. You can't work the angles. There are no angles. And so the result is the Ammonites are condemned. Which brings us to chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. And I uh, so I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet and I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him. Interesting storyline. Um, Edom, who has already been condemned, right? In the text. Edom, at one point in time, Edom and Israel and Judah established a pact they shouldn't have Israel and Judah shouldn't have but they established a pact to go to war against Syria I'm sorry to go to war against Moab <coughs> and because Moab was too strong and so they went to war and um, Edom and Israel and Judah actually had success and beat back Moab and conquered them not conquered, but beat them back. After they had the victory and got peace on the new boundaries, Israel and Judah backed off and went back home. At that point in time, Moab attacked Edom. 
And when Moab attacked Edom, Edom was alone. Israel and Judah wasn't there to help them. And Moab had success against Edom. When they did, they captured the king. They took the king up on, and this is historically recorded, they took the king up on the, up on the wall and they burned him alive in front of everyone. And it says, as he says here, go, burned him all the way down to, to lime. Absolute destruction. Now I'm not sure all the ramifications of that, um, except that God did have a covenant of some type with um, uh, Edom. And the result is that God said, you didn't listen to, he says to Moab, you didn't listen to who I am. You had the data. Again, you didn't listen. And the result is you will be destroyed as well. That's enough about the, the text itself. What do we do with this? And I'm going to wrap it up on this. What do we do with all this historical data? Well, the point of this story that we just read, all these stories we just read, six stories we just read and talked about, is this. It's a noose around Israel's neck. It's important we get this because it sets up the whole book. It's a noose around their neck that is slowly but surely being tightened. Foreign nations, relatives. And next is Judah. Tighter and tighter and tighter. What's the point? All these other nations, foreign nations, relative nations, and then sister nation, we'll see next week, is this. God is saying to Israel, you're no different. As a matter of fact, you're worse. You're a whole lot worse. That's what he's saying to Israel. You're a whole lot worse. Why? Because they had some data, these nations, the foreign nations first, had some data about God. A lot more than we would expect, but they had some data about God. About his promises. About his faithful fulfillment of his promises. About his love, about his mercy, about his care, his compassion. As well as his justice. They knew about his promises. And functionally, in spite of all that, functionally they lived as if they weren't true. That's the point. Functionally they lived life as if those things were not true about God. The relative nations had more data. Had a lot more data. A lot more truth. A lot more light. Functionally speaking, they lived like it wasn't true. Ultimately, what's going to happen in the book is God is going to say, Israel, here's the deal. These three foreign nations had light, had truth, acted as if it wasn't real. These three relative nations had more data, acted as if it wasn't true. Judah, that we'll see next week, had even more light, acted as if it wasn't true. Israel, you're in the center of the spotlight. You have it all. You have the covenant. But not only do you have the covenant, the covenant is about you. It's given to you about you. You have God's revealed word that we now know is 39 books. You have the promises. And by the way, you have the greatest promise. That I'll send you a Redeemer. 
and he will save his people from his sins. But functionally speaking, you live like it doesn't exist. That's the point of Amos. That's the point of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2. It's really easy to look at, to bring it into today, it's really easy to look at, if I may use illustrations, it's really easy to look at, at um, homosexuals. Just going to throw it out there. It's really easy to look at homosexuals and say, man, they deserve the condemnation of God. They deserve judgment. It's really easy to look at agnostics and atheists and say, yeah, they deserve judgment. It's really easy to look at, at, at Muslims who are killing Christians and say, yeah, they deserve judgment, don't they? Isn't that easy? Isn't it? Really easy to say that. It's really easy for pe- Let me get really practical this week. It's really easy, isn't it? To look at New York State this week if you follow news at all. It's really easy to look at New York State what they decided this week. Abortion up to the up to the day of birth, the moment of birth. Legal. This week they passed it. They're not the only states. There's other states, by the way. They're just most recent. It's really easy to look at that and say, condemnation. It's really easy to look at that and say, they are rejecting God and the law of God and the character of God and the attributes of God. Isn't it easy to say that? Is it true? Of course it's true. But it's really easy to do that, isn't it? And it's really easy to ignore this, isn't it? Isn't it? It's really easy to see those things and, 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 and although I'm, I would never abort a child, I would never support aborting a child, you know, my morals is too strong for that, I just conveniently ignore other things that are absolute violations of the character of God. Do you realize that? I do it every day. And in so doing, I'm just like the, day, the people in the days of Amos. I'm just like them. Which it brings us to Psalm 30, 139. Which I love so much. And so thank you for, for bringing that up. So I'm going to close with it. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. The, the, the psalmist, David here says, in light of, as, as you said, I'm not going to rehash what you said, but God, I need you to try me and know my thoughts because you know what? I can't. I see, I see the evil of Governor Cuomo and his decision. I get that. I do. Get it. It's like I have to be brain dead not to pick that up. I just don't see mine. What I need more than anything else is for God to search me and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts and see what grievous ways are in me. That's the idea. See if there be a grievous way in me. Well, duh, there are. Because I can't figure them out. I need you, God, to do this. And to lead me in the way everlasting. You see, my response ought, yes, should I be a little angry about what's going on in New York, for example, this week? Well, yes. But you know what I ought to be? I ought to be more 
grievous. I don't know my sin. I ought to be more grievous and more exercised over the reality that I'm, I'm a sinner as well. That should be the reminder of this. More so than that. Evil people are going to be evil, aren't they? Of course they are. When evil people are being evil and, and, and displaying it and cheering it on, that was the most horrifying thing to me is when the legislators were cheering it. My response should be, oh God, examine me and lead me into the way of everlasting. That should have been Israel's response as they saw the Edomites and the Ammonites condemnation and all the rest of those countries, Damascus, Syria, all of them. He should have been saying, oh God, please examine me and lead me in the way of everlasting. But instead they said, Amos, why don't you go back to Judah? So, could I just close by saying this? How about we, as a people, perhaps spend our week in Psalm 139? In light of the six nations that we've looked at today, and many, many other things we could add in there that are current. Perhaps we ought to be more like David in Psalm 139. God, I am desperately wicked. I desperately need you to see. I desperately need you to examine, even though I'm not going to like it, because I love my sin. Open my eyes to help me to see. Help me to realize how much I need you. And help me and lead me into the way everlasting. Do you realize he's promised that? Isn't that incredible? That's exactly why he came. To lead us in the way everlasting. Amen? So let's do that this week, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We <coughs> are very skillful at saying yes and amen when others are judged. And we are so skillful at recognizing other types of evil but one of the greatest evils is that we don't bless your name we functionally speaking act as if your word is irrelevant so often and so we cry out this morning and ask you examine our hearts Discover the grievous ways. Help us. And lead us into paths that are everlasting paths for your glory. And help us to be like David in Psalm 51. When we are forgiven, that we begin to find ourselves impelled by your love and grace and your spirit to teach sinners their way. So they too will glory in you and will too bless your name. Amen.